Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How far behind is Canada when it comes to national security? Well, recent events would definitely suggest that we have a lot of work to do because the world out there is changing fast. And Ottawa's response to this latest controversy has shown that it's actually pretty slow. Joining us now to talk more about this is Vincent Rigby, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister. Vincent, thank you for being back with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. There have been quite a few developments since we last talked to you. We've, we saw the press conference from the Prime Minister. So what do you make of these latest moves to try to tackle this foreign interference issue? I think one of the problems with the whole issue over foreign interference right now and so many other national security issues that are popping up on the radio screen of the government is it's quite, it's quite tactical. And so the foreign interference issue that's out there right now has become a political football. It's, it's very politicized. Everyone's sniping at one another and looking for opportunities to score political points. But no one is really approaching this strategically. And um, the fact of the matter is that China is doing all kinds of things right now. We've seen it with respect to foreign interference. They conduct espionage. They steal intellectual property. They send spy balloons over the United States. And so um, Canada, I think, needs to wake up a little bit and realize that there has been this very, very large tectonic shift in the global landscape and that rising tensions between the West and, uh, and China and Russia are serious, very serious, and that we can't stand on the sidelines. We have, to, we have to get engaged. We have to approach this strategically about how we're going to play in this bigger game. Okay, what do you mean by strategically? Well, again, um, we don't have a national security strategy. We have no framework right now for dealing with the security challenges that are out there. We haven't had one since 2004, which is kind of mind-boggling when you think about it, 20 years since we've had any kind of government strategy to deal with these, these kinds of issues. And so what's happening right now is that every time a crisis pops up, whether it's foreign interference or whether it's a, it's a, it's a spy balloon or whether it's, it's something else, we deal with these things in a very piecemeal fashion. So you saw the government's response on Monday with the prime minister's announcement that we're going to have a bunch of reviews and a special rapporteur and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Um, that to me is a, is a tactical response to a much, much more serious problem. We need a, a national security strategy. We need a strategy to address hostile state activities from countries like China and Russia so that we can pull all this together. And it doesn't need to be just it shouldn't just be whole of government. It needs to be whole of Canada. We need to be working with the provinces, with the territories, with the private sector, with civil society. This is a big, big change we're seeing in the world right now. And it's not business as usual. So when you were in that position then, can you give us an idea of how it is Canada does deal with these kinds of situations? Is it piecemeal? Is it that we're just going to deal with these things as they come up? Well, I think that's part of the problem. Um, you can be responsive and you can wait for these things to happen or you can try and get ahead of the power curve, so to speak, 
and you can start to think strategically and holistically about, okay, these are the shifting trends in the world right now. How are we going to respond to them? And so I've been saying publicly uh, since I left the job that it would be really nice if we had a cabinet committee on national security chaired by the prime minister that met on a regular basis and that got regular intelligence briefings, um, met every couple of weeks and, and thought about these things and talked about the threats and could see them looming in the distance and, and again, try and get ahead of them. Every single country in the Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership, and I believe in the G7 as well, has a body like this where there's coordination where the prime minister is on top of these things, getting briefed with other key ministers. Um, otherwise, um, if you don't have that sort of holistic strategy to this and you're not in constant response, well, this, this is what you get. Right. You, you get piecemeal stuff. You get the government reacting to crises and then and then it becomes a political football, as I said earlier. Okay, so if every other G7 country or Five Eyes country has this and we don't, like, why is that? Was there historically a reason why Canada didn't go down that path? Well, I've been saying for a while, and, and I experienced it, and you could probably say that maybe I was part of the problem. I don't, I don't know. I certainly did my best in government. But there's a, there's a culture issue here in Canada when it comes to national security. We don't take it as seriously as a lot of other countries. Uh, I've often said that's partly because we're a neighbor of the United States, yeah. and we tend to assume that the U.S. is going to take care of us. I also think we've never had a 9-11 moment like the United States had or the U.K. has had uh, threats that have manifested themselves in very violent ways, uh, terrorist attacks, et cetera. They've gone through numerous wars. I mean, we've always been there when, when push comes to shove in terms of responding to, to major international crises and events. But in terms of having something happen on our soil uh, and really open up our eyes, it, it, it hasn't really happened. So we've become a little bit complacent. And um, those days of complacency, in my view, have to, have to, have to finish right, right now. And we're seeing this every day with these with these various crises that are that are popping up. Also, you mentioned 9-11 there. I think that's so important because post 9-11, certainly there was a lot more effort made to tie our security to the United States. And perhaps that did make us feel like we didn't need to work independently of that. Well, there was, some, again, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. We, we, we had a crisis. We had yeah. 9-11, these horrific terrorist attacks in the United States, and then we all pulled together. Um, and, and you know, for 10, 15 years, I think Canada pulled its weight in the fight against terrorism, deployed troops to Afghanistan. We lost a lot of lives, a lot of blood and treasure. Um, but are we going to wait for the next crisis? The, the post-9-11 world is over. I mean, just like the Cold War finished and we had instability in the 1990s, then we had 9-11 and we had 10, 15 years of, of a fight against terrorism. We've now got a shift to a world of great power rivalry again. And in some respects, it's more dangerous than the Cold War because you've got now not just Soviet Union and the West, but you've got Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, um, all of it mixed up together. So are you going to wait for uh, events to happen? We've already had Ukraine happen. We should have opened up our eyes. What's the next one going to be? Is it going to be Taiwan? Is it going to be something in the South China Sea? Um, you can't you can't wait and then respond. And, you know, some of our public officials have been quite open that we're not ready, including the chief of the defense staff, who said that our military is not the military that we're going to need to confront these challenges. So um, we, we've got to get moving. Are we on that path with all with everything that's gone on the last couple of weeks? Or do you just see this as, as you put it, like it's just a political situation now? Well, I, I think, again, we're, we're still too much into response mode. And, and this stuff, to me, is it's, it's all tactical stuff when it comes to um, 
election interference and 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 foreign interference. It's it's important stuff, but it's it's a very small piece of the overall puzzle. So I go back to my point at the beginning. Um, we need to be more strategic. To answer your question, no, I, I don't think we're, we're there yet. We need to do a, a lot more. Um, governments, not just this government, but future governments are going to have to make national security a priority. I don't think it is a priority right now. It becomes a priority when when stuff hits the fan, if I can yeah. put it that way. But we shouldn't be waiting for that to happen because I can tell you bad stuff is going to happen. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. China is not going to disappear. This could be the world that we live in for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, so w- wake up. Let's let's get ready to, to, to do what we need to do both at home in North America with the United States, as we saw with the balloons and NORAD and making sure that's ready to, to um, respond to threats. And then internationally, beyond our, our the North American continent, uh, what we do potentially in Europe, Indo-Pacific, do we have the tools to, to potentially deploy troops um, in, a, in a very dangerous situation? And I'm not sure we do right now. Vincent, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me again. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you know if your salary is fair? Like when you look around the room in your workplace, do you think that you make the same or what's similar to other people doing your job? Or do you suspect that others might be paid more? And you feel like, hey, that's not right. That is not fair. Well, there is new pay transparency legislation that has been tabled in Victoria that could change the way you address your salary, even with your bosses. To find out more about it, Kelly Patton joins us now, the Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equality. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Now, first off, tell us about this legislation. What does this mean for people in the workplace? Oh, yesterday we tabled legislation that's going to close the gap on gender pay. Um, once legislation's passed, and as of November 1st, all employers will be required to include salary ranges on advertised jobs. Um, there won't be any any punishment for talking about your salary with other people. Um, and and one of the really like exciting pieces is we're going to be having pay transparency reports from employers. We're phasing that in and a centralized reporting from the province so that you can understand where you stand in relation to others. Oh, wait a minute. Is that for any, like any private employers going to have to do this or is this for public service jobs? Well, we're phasing it in. So as of November 2023, it'll be BC Public Service Agency and Crown Corporations. But then um, in 2024, it'll be all employers uh, with 1,000 employees or more. And in 2025, anyone with 300 employees or more. Um, And then finally, 2026, 50 employees or more. And um, we can take a look at the numbers as well and see if we need to reach further. Okay, and I guess I'm curious here about, like, how are you really going to know? Posting the salary on a new job listing is one thing, but how do you really know what someone is getting paid after the fact? Well, there's a, a few ways. And posting the salary range, people are actually really excited about this because we've all been to that interview where we don't know what, what to expect, right? Um, but we're going to be able to look at uh, across across industries. We're going to be able to compare. Um, and we're going beyond the gender binary, too, which is, is a first in Canada. So that's, that's exciting. It's all about education. It's all about being aware. Um, I know that I saw an article yesterday where people were saying, like, um, they, there had been a poll and people were saying, you know, the gender equity issue is, is blown out of proportion. So we're not all starting the same conversation right now. And it's, this information will help us all be starting. It'll also empower employees to talk to their employers and to choose champion employers who really um, are moving forward with pay equity. 
Okay, so what is the recourse there for someone who 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 gets in trouble, I guess, at work or feels that they're being punished for acti- asking about this? So we know that uh, there's a labor code. Um, first, pay discrimination, any discrimination based on gender, um, is not legal in British Columbia. It's against the Human Rights Code. And then we know that we have standards for employment and labor. So if you're fired... Um, you know, if there's no cause for you to be fired or reprimanded, there's all there's always been recourse for you to take there as well. Okay, are you talking about perhaps like going to the Human Rights Tribunal or something like that? Um, so it, it would if you filed a wrongful dismissal claim is what I'm talking about. If you were to be um, punished or, or fired for for disclosing your pay amount or discussing your pay amount. Right. Okay. So if there, if that happens though, do those systems like, you know, whether it's an employment standards tribunal or a human rights tribunal, can they take on the extra work right now? Cause I understand that there's been quite a bit of backlog in those places too. So one of the things that I know is that the work being done actually with a lot of legislation that um, we're bringing forward this week around gender equity uh, is it's really a cross ministry effort. And so I know um, our partners in labor are excited to see this as well. This, I, I'm with the Ministry of Finance um, with the Gender Equity Office, but labor is excited. Uh, jobs, economic development and innovation. They're excited. Uh, even across the board, uh, everyone has been working Cross ministry to make sure that we're tackling um, gender equity, and this comes right from the premier as well. That we're to work together and make make BC stronger. So, what is the most immediate way people will see this impact? Do you think it will be those job postings? Well, as soon as the bill receives royal assent, so as soon as it's passed, um, and and we see that royal assent in BC, people will um, no longer be able to be punished um, for disclosing their pay or, or talking about salary with coworkers or prospective, um, prospective employees. And then we're also going to um, be prohibiting other behaviors that contribute to the gender pay gap, which is asking about pay history information from prospective employees um, when in that interview process, in that negotiation process. And this is important because it can perpetuate the same discriminations that have happened previously. Um, so those are two changes that happen as soon as Royal Assent hits. Um, as of November 1st, you'll see all on all those publicly advertised job opportunities, uh, you'll see that salary range public, published, and we'll see the first report um, from the BC Public Service. June 1st, I think, is when the ministry will put out the centralized report to talk about it as well. All right, it's interesting. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Today being International Women's Day, we definitely wanted to highlight stories of women who broke barriers. Well, how about someone who fought her way through life to earn a PhD in accounting into the public service, eventually becoming the first woman to hold the position of assistant secretary for the prime minister's office before eventually retiring in 2000. And she didn't stop there. She's continued to mentor and coach women, and she's here to talk to us now. Janet Smith is also, by the way, the author of a book called Standing in Possibility. And Janet, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. How does it feel, Janet, when people describe you as this pioneer? <laughs> a bit unreal. But it is true. It is true. How did you get there? I mean, the first woman to serve as, uh, you know, in the prime minister's office as an assistant secretary. How did you get there? Well, it, some of it was a, a 
good mentors. Some of it was good friends. Um, being in the right place at the right time. That leaves a lot, though, to and, being in the right place at the right time, though, Janet. There must have been a lot of hard work on your part, too. Yes, but it also, for women in those days, the timing was right. When I joined the public service in 1972, for example, there were no women in the executive group. And now it's almost half. But for you, being one of the first, yeah. what did you have to put up with, though? <laughs> uh, well, here's a little antidote. Uh, the, the time of the, the PCO was um, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was prime minister. And at one point, I had been in a meeting with four ministers, and they uh, wanted to pass a message to, to the prime minister. So I phoned to pass the message, and the secretary said, could you please have somebody more senior call? In other words, could you have a man call? And what did you do? I got my boss to call, and I put it on the line with him that it was his job to make sure that the people in the prime minister's office knew what my job was and who I was, so this wouldn't happen again. Okay, so that fascinates me, Janet, because clearly you said, I'm not letting that happen again. Uh, some people might have said, you know what, fine, I'll get my boss to call. Like, you, you clearly knew when to push, didn't you? Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't do my job um, unless I could get through to him. Yeah, that's true. But you also had to run up against that probably time and time again. Oh, many times. I mean, when I first went to the University of California for my PhD, the first you know, few months, I went to see one of my professors, and he said, okay, before you sit down, let me tell you that I do not believe that women or men over 40 have any right to be in this program. And I, thought, what? I can't remember what, what he said after that. Yeah, you were probably raging. If somebody said that to me, I would be raging too. Um, well, Janet, it's also clear from your history, like mentoring has been really important to you, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And I learned that early on. Um, there was there were some senior women who were kind of in the queen bee fact category. They didn't see any neat reason to reach out to other women. Um, they'd made it and they figured everybody should make it on their own. The first woman that was um, in, got into the executive group was a woman named Jean Edmonds. She worked in Winnipeg, and she was always convinced that because the people in Ottawa that approved it didn't know people in the regions, that they they thought she was a francophone male. <laughs> And she was the most wonderful mentor for all of us. And you just decided that was so important that you were going to be a mentor too. Right. And I learned from her. When you look back on your career, Janet, what are you most proud of? Um, I, I, a number of things. Um, certainly the increasing role that women play in the public service. I take credit for some of that. Um, 
One of the biggest and most fun files that I worked on was Expo 86 in Vancouver, uh, which was a huge success, as you probably know. And underlying it was um, public policy to put Vancouver on the map in Canada and to open the Pacific Rim to more trade. And I, I think it worked in both for both of those. Um, the sale of Air Canada was a big file for me. Those are all huge stories, though. So, Janet, do you? Yeah, that's you, right. Huge. You could write a book on each of them. You could. The, the biggest one was I survived. Yeah. Now, the alternate titles for my book at one time were Swimming in a Sea of Piranhas. <laughs> and, which you did. And, which I did many times, and I, I felt like that, too. Um, and the other one was Climbing Mount Misogyny, which one of my mentors for the book, Stan Shapiro, was at, he was quite insistent that that should be the title. Well, you've done that too, Janet. I just can't even imagine the stories that you have got. So guess what? I'm going to have to read that book from cover to cover and hear all the I stories firsthand. I will. Janet, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been delightful. Thank you. And that's Janet Smith. Now, Janet was the first female assistant secretary to the prime minister. And we are talking back in the 1970s. Can you imagine the things that she must have heard or things that were said to her? Her book, by the way, is called Standing in Possibility. I think we should definitely check it out on this International Women's Day. What stories that she must have in there? This is Mornings with Simi. It's about getting more locally grown, more BC produced food on everyone's table because that supports food producers as well as the health and wellness of British Columbians. That's Premier David Eby there. It's a good question. Does our province have food security? I remember the floods and the road washouts and how worried we were about getting supplies and everything here. I mean, do we have the ability here in BC to rely on our province for our food? So the BC government made an announcement about investing in food security yesterday. That's what Premier Eby was talking about. Things like, you know, putting money into our food supply chain and expanding local food production. If you're like me, you probably already try to buy local whenever possible. Funny story on that. My name recently came up. I got an email uh, for a local produce box. You know, lots of places have this. Local farms have this where they'll deliver or you can pick up a local produce box in the summertime. Uh, I'd, apparently I'd signed up for this two years ago. That's how long the waiting list had been to get in on this particular produce box. I mean, that's a good sign, but how do we help farmers, local farmers, produce more and support them to do that? Well, joining us now is Leanna Glass, who's the operator of City Beat Farms. Good morning, Leanna. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And before I get to anything else, you also do the produce box in the summer, don't you? That's right. Yeah, we call it a CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And people come for about 20 weeks and pick up a share of our harvest every week in the summer. And how? what is demand like for that? It's pretty good. So we have, um, we operate right in the city and most of our, we grow in yards and most of them are in Riley Park. And most of the people who buy our produce live in Riley Park or Mount Pleasant. So we have a pretty small catchment area, but every year we have a wait list. Um, yeah, so there's lots of interest. I can imagine. So I'm fascinated by how you grow this. So you you say you grow this in people's front and backyards in Mount Pleasant and Riley Park? Yeah. So City Beat actually started in 2013. um, And I run the farm now with my partner, Duncan, and we've been running it since 2021. And we're the third owners. 
but the original owners just went around door knocking and asking people if they could grow in their yards in exchange for uh, some of the vegetables that they grew. And it started out with five yards, and now we have about 12 or 13. Um, and the farm altogether is just shy of half an acre. So in terms of farming, it's a, it's a micro farm. It's quite small. Um, but yeah, we grow in people's front and backyards. And um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have probably walked by some of our yards, maybe without even knowing what they were. Probably. But and been impressed, right? Been impressed by the vegetable garden that they see yes, there. Yes, of course. <laughs> I've actually had that happen. And I think I was talking to somebody once where I said, my goodness, your vegetable garden's amazing. And he said, well, it's not mine. We do it. They also did it for a, a local kind of farming group like that too. And I said, still impressive. I guess, Leanna, <laughs> does it surprise people though at what you can grow in a small amount of space? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, this is just anecdotal, but we do hear from some of the neighbors of the yards that we use that seeing our yards really inspired them to grow their own garden. And they're maybe not growing as much as we are because we use the whole yard and maybe they just set aside a little plot, but we love hearing that. It's so meaningful. Um, and I think just because our yards are so visible, we're a lot more visible to more people than um, a normal rural farm. Um, that is a big part of what we keep in mind that we sort of are, we're engaging urban dwellers with the food system and elements of, of agriculture that they wouldn't normally see. You're kind of like the poster people for food security at this point in the city, aren't you? <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. But yeah, I, I do think, you know, we get disproportionate to our size. We do get a lot more visibility and a lot more engagement. So, yeah. What do you wish people would know about this? Like we talk about food security, but do you think do British Columbians understand how important it is to grow their own food? Yeah, I mean, I would say not everybody needs to grow their own food. One way that I conceptualize what we do is sort of imagine that as a neighborhood or two neighborhoods, Riley Park and Mount Pleasant got together and they were like, hmm, you know, I don't I don't want a garden necessarily. Not everybody. I do another job that's important for our community. And then you can sort of choose a few community members to do the growing. And that's like the whole point of living in a society. <laughs> so I would say that I don't think we need to focus on individual sort of that sort of individualist um, view of sustainability. But I do think a lot of people can be growing their own food if it brings them joy and if that's something that they enjoy um, doing. Right. But even supporting local agriculture, right? Like this big announcement from the government yesterday about investing in food security. Is this something that you think we need to do more of? Yeah, for sure. I think that, so the way that I think about food security is sort of two prongs. And you can see in the way that they made the announcement that they're sort of thinking about it in that way too. And there's the, the way that I think about it is um, the, the local accessibility of food like is there food available ready available to me um, in case of an emergency you mentioned the floods last year that's a great example it cut off supply chains any food coming in from further than the Fraser Valley or even including the Fraser Valley because it was so affected um, was cut off or severely limited and so that's one element and they're clearly trying to address that by providing funds to farmers and I see some of the funding is specifically for flood preparedness in the Fraser Valley um, and then there's another element that affects the, the lived experience of food insecurity, and that is an income issue. People who experience food insecurity, it's about poverty. It's about not having enough money to buy food. And that might be caused by things like chronic illness or domestic violence and, and things that we don't necessarily think of or associate with food insecurity. And that fundamentally is an income issue. 
and will be solved as a root cause if we address income. So continually funding like food insecurity directly is super important and food banks do amazing work. And if we wanted to address the root causes of that experience of food insecurity, we would be having programming for income and maybe a, a basic income. Like you really love educating people about this, don't you? Because you even offer tours down on the farm. Yeah, we, we do. Hoping to do more of those this year, but we will be offering some, some walking tours between some of our yards. What do you love about farming, Liana? I love, um, I love being outside. I've always loved that. I love working with my hands. Um, I kind of, I have a master's in urban planning, so I was not planning to be a farmer. I'm not educated as a, a farmer. Um, and then I kind of, I finished my master's and I was looking out into the work world and I was like, I don't want to sit at a desk all the time. <laughs> so I think there's that embodied experience of farming that I love. And then the type of farming that we do in the city, um, it still relates to the things in urban planning that I was interested in. You know, we are, we're sort of reimagining what underused spaces in a city can be used for. Um, and then I, I do love the sustainability and environmental aspect of it. We use all ecological practices, so think organic, but we're not certified. Um, and it just, it feels like really deeply meaningful work. And that's really important to me. I love this. Okay, so how, how can we help out for people who think, yeah, I, I would like to do more, you know, to make a difference when it comes to food security? How can the rest of us help out? Yeah, I would say supporting local farmers um, does make a difference for sure. Sign up for a CSA if you can. I know that's a big ask. Um, and it's not always convenient for everybody, but there are tons of great farms around Vancouver in the Fraser Valley in sort of the Delta area and even up to Pemberton. Um, and a lot of them have CSAs that deliver into the city. Um, and then I would say another thing, you know, just coming back to that sort of political policy thing, it matters who you vote for. And even if it, the person you voted for isn't in power, you can be, you know, contacting your representatives and getting involved in sort of social justice movements because, um, yeah, that sort of policy level is really, really important. Well, Liana, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. This has been delightful. This is Mornings with Simi. You know how we learn? We learn by hearing people's stories. These stories help us to understand, to empathize, to maybe affect change. And so we thought on this International Women's Day it was important to talk about stories, right? One of the great ways to hear those stories is what's something called the Indigenous Writers Circle Program. It's been around for a couple of years. It was launched by Audible in collaboration with Toronto's AM640. We wanted to learn more about it today to talk about some of the amazing stories it has featured. Odette Auger joins us now, one of the alumni for Audible's Indigenous Writers Circle. Odette, thank you for being here. No, thank you for having me. How important was this program to you? What did it allow you to do? It was absolutely important in building confidence, basically. Um, I've always been a storyteller, and I think a lot of our Ojibwe teachings are around humility. I know that's shared with many other nations. And humility can also enter into self-doubt, right? <laughs> right? The two things can become similar. So um, I... It caught my eye, and I thought, let's just let my writing speak for itself. Let's just see what the writing can do. And I sent in 2,000 words, and it was accepted. And so I was able to work one-on-one -on -one with a mentor and also access the other mentorships and other guest speakers and workshops for six months. Oh, that's amazing. So then what did you learn from that process? Like, Did it change your writing? 
didn't change my writing, but it definitely changed my approach and a lot of my process. Um, I write really intuitively, really early in the morning before my before my right. family are awake, <laughs> making noise. So um, I wake up early and I just write. Uh, full scenes will emerge in my head, and my job is just to write them down so others could see them or feel them or um, sense them. And my mentor was Angela Starrett, CBC journalist, and so she had a much more organized approach. Um, very much more about the chapter outlines and how to introduce more structure right from the beginning. And so I think now I have a much more balanced approach between those two things. Right. Everybody is different, though. I've learned that in speaking to so many different authors. Everybody has their own way of approaching writing, don't they? Definitely. And that was part of the learning, too, is able to learn from our peers, um, 24 other writers, and, you know, sometimes commiserating together, sometimes sharing challenges or solutions, right? Like, I'm having a hard time with this. This strikes too close to home. Um, Am I fictionalizing real life here? Like, how to tease that out and and just be really clear about what I'm doing. And other writers had tons of advice for me. Now, why do you think a program like this is so necessary? Like, it's an Indigenous writer's circle. It wants to lift up those voices. How hard was it for you to get heard otherwise? I think, similarly, I think um, there's just a lot of systemic hurdles, I would say, that, you know, combined with humility, combined with my mother, um, her early childhood was spent in residential schools. It just wasn't in me to, you know, put my hand up and, me, me, you know, Let's let's look at me for a bit. It just was definitely not my personality or, or culture around how I was raised, for better or worse. And I think that Audible feels a niche right there. So it's for any Indigenous person, Indigenous First Nations or Inuit person who wants to write. So they don't have to be in a writing program in a college or university. They don't have to come from a family that has a lot of writers to tap for inspiration or advice. It can be anyone who wants to write, does write, loves writing, whether they have, you know, an established background or not. And so I think that it just fills a really essential gap there that it's welcoming, it's receptive. People can enter at any stage of their process, whether they just have a seed like I did. And I just had that 2,000-word seed. And some of the other writers were much farther along. And so they were looking for more input on how to polish it for reaching out to publishers. Right. And and now you're a mentor yourself, aren't you? I do. I do mostly with youth and uh and young indigenous reporters for Watershed Sentinel. I'm just love to hear about these opportunities now. What kind of stories do you hear from them? Do they sense that there are opportunities for them? I think uh, probably not. Probably when they first start, um they're surprised, you know, and when when we're teaching them reporting basics for Watershed Sentinel. It is environmental stories, but it's, it could be applied anywhere. And so I really encourage them, you know, we want first dibs on your environmental stories while you're mentoring with us, but please do feel free to take these skills and run with them. And um, some of the young women were in school um, just thinking about college or mid-degree mid and all of a sudden journalism you know, it became something that, at least as an elective, they could tap. Like, I can write. I, You know, they all had strong voices uh, in who they were. That's what we saw in their applications. But just with a little bit of, you know, skill building and fine-tuning and thinking of your audience. And, um, yeah, it's really exciting to see them sort of 
brighten up, like, wow, like, I could do this. <laughs> you know, my story is yeah. in print. Okay. I, I could do anything. Odette, that's, I think, what is so amazing about this is that here are these opportunities, and maybe they had been counted out or they had counted themselves out because they didn't think that was open to them, and now they realize it is open to them. Absolutely. So how do you get that message through to them? How do you help make them understand that? I think just with careful listening, it's the same thing I would do if I was interviewing someone for one of my articles. Um, With listening to their story and hearing what is meaningful to them and what is lighting them up, and then just it's really validating for any of us when we hear someone's actually listening to our story, um, whether that's a story you're reporting on in your community or, or a piece of fiction. I think that, you know, as soon as you feel genuinely listened to, it, it just builds a ton of confidence and, and there's a, a lot of opportunity out there for Indigenous writers for sure. And this is one of them. Um, the application's open until April 14th. So I would encourage anyone listening who's thinking, should I, should I not? You definitely should. (laughs) You definitely should, and you'll enjoy it. Uh, Odette, where can we find your work? Oh, mine, uh, Authory. All my work is collected in one place at authory.com. So it's author with a Y, and in my name, Odette Auger, A-U-G-E-R. And um, it's all gathered there in one spot. I would love to check it out. Odette, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, and happy Women's Day to you, too. To you as well. That is Odette Auger. She's an alumni for Audible's Indigenous Writers Circle, so they're still accepting applications, as you heard her say. Uh, Just check it out. It's until April the 14th, but offering some real opportunities uh, for emerging Indigenous writers to find an audience and understand that, yes, there is an audience for their work out there. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.